Amen. Thanks, Rebecca, for praying for us. Well, if you have your Bible, please do open to Galatians chapter 5 and have that open in front of you as we look at it together. One of the things we've been learning from our studies in Galatians is that God does not just want us as his people to believe in the gospel and then put it on a shelf. He doesn't want us to treat the gospel like an insurance document that you put away in a filing cabinet and only take out in case of an emergency. No, we've been saying that God wants us to learn to live in the goodness of the gospel every day. God wants us to enjoy the glorious freedom of conscience which Christ has bought for us through his death. He wants us to enjoy the freedom of assurance that we have all we need in Christ to be right with him. God wants us to enjoy the freedom and security that comes from our new identity as people in Christ, our identity as beloved sons of God. But as we've seen, this gospel goodness and gospel freedom is something we can fail to live in, in at least two ways. Like the Galatians, we can go back as Christians to relating to God as if our right standing with him is based on our performance, our performance of certain religious works. When we are struggling with our acts of devotion to the Lord, we can carry what I've called a low-level guilt. We feel like we can't freely come to God in prayer because of our unworthiness. And we can live so much of our lives under these kind of gray clouds of guilt and shame because we feel so unworthy because of our poor performance. We could call this a kind of legalism where you start to think that you need to be so devoted to a system that God will like you. That's one way you can fail to live in the goodness of the freedom of the gospel. But there's another way. This is by thinking that freedom in Christ means you can just live a sloppy Christian life. Be sloppy in obedience, sloppy in discipline, just half-hearted in devotion. We'd never say it, but somewhere deep down, we might think that because Christ has done all we need to be right with God, we don't really need to take seriously the pursuit of a life of godliness. We could call this license. It's at the other end of the pole. If legalism's over here, way over here, you could call this license. Now, don't be confused by my use of that word license. The first meaning in the dictionary of license is a permit from an authority to be able to do something. But the second meaning is freedom to behave as one wishes. We don't use it as much today, that word. You're given to license means you just live whatever way you want. Those are two ways you can fail to live in the goodness of gospel freedom. On one side of the horse, you fall off into legalism, thinking it's to do with your performance of works to get God to like you. 
On the other side of the horse, you fall off thinking, well, in Christ, I don't have to do any works, and you just live whatever way you want. Or, as a Christian, you subtly take for granted grace, and you get sloppy. God does not want us to walk on the path of legalism, and he does not want us to walk on the path of license. He wants us to walk in the path of true Christian liberty. To enjoy our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to live empowered by the Spirit by grace. Saved by grace, empowered to live by grace. And the passage we come to this morning is here to help us do that. Walk in the path of Christian liberty and to live in the goodness of gospel freedom. The first thing Paul does in chapter 5, verse 1, is he makes a bold assertion and then gives a command about Christian freedom. Let's look at that first of all. The assertion, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. That is a stunning gospel announcement. And to get at what Paul is saying here, I think it's helpful to ask the question, right, Paul, well, what are we freed from? And what are we freed for? What are we freed from? Well, in a sense, that has been what Paul has been teaching in the first four chapters of this letter. In chapter 3, verses 10 to 29 specifically, Paul explained that in the Old Testament law, God laid down a standard of righteousness for his people. Obey the law and you'll be righteous. But he went on to explain in Galatians 3 that we as humans have a huge problem. Because of our sinful nature, we are too weak to obey the law. We are unable to meet God's standard. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is God's glorious standards. In chapter 3, verse 10, Paul said that because of our sin, because of our failure to obey the law, we are under the curse of the law. That is, under God's righteous condemnation, under his displeasure, imprisoned in a prison of fear, guilt, and shame, with eternal hell, our sentence. But, in chapter 3, verse 13, Paul said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He set us free from that by becoming a curse for us. Christ bore the penalty of our law-breaking through his death. His death liberates us from condemnation, sets us free from the futility of attempting to earn our right standing before a holy God. Christ's death and resurrection sets us free from the fear and guilt and shame that comes from our sinful, weak inability to earn our salvation. Christ's death sets us free 
from all the consequences of our sin. He lifts off of us the sentence of eternal condemnation in hell. That's amazing. Amazing grace. That's what you're set free from. Trying to earn your way to God and failing and being sentenced to hell for it. Well, what are we set free for? For freedom, Christ set us free. God liberated you in Christ from all of those things I just mentioned so that you could enjoy living in the goodness of gospel freedom. God wants you to enjoy living in the goodness of the freedom of the gospel every day. He has told us that over and over and over again in the Bible. He does not want us languishing again under the gray clouds of low-level guilt and condemnation with a sense of unworthiness. He wants us to enjoy, like we've enjoyed here in Northern Ireland for the last three weeks, blue skies of grace. He wants us to live in the freedom of the gospel every day. When you wake up at the start of a new day, you taste afresh the calm of forgiven sins. When you go to school, university, or work, when you rest or in your ongoing journey of Christian growth, you can preach to yourself every day, I'm free from sin today in Christ, free from effort-based salvation which would condemn me, free from fear, free from insecurity, free from doubting that I'm good enough, free from guilt and shame, I'm free from it all. And then every day you think, can it be true again today? And the answer is yes! I don't know if you feel that, but I feel that all the time. I wake up in the morning and I just think again of of my poor performance as a Christian. I'm more materialistic than I want to be. I'm less prayerful than I want to be. I stand here and preach, hopefully boldly, and then I can be as timid as a mouse when I come to witness in front of people, and I just say, Lord, I'm so rubbish. Can it be true again that you don't count my sins against me, and none of that defines me? I'm defined by Christ alone and His righteousness. I'm loved by you, accepted by you. No guilt, no shame. You love me, and I love you. Can it be true again? Yes. Every day, living in the goodness of the freedom from the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that Satan wants to keep throwing in your face so that you feel unworthy to keep you from God. What are you set free for? Freedom. And what else does that mean other than God saying, I've set you free to enjoy living in the goodness of my grace? Imagine the prisoner who spent 40 years in prison. Whilst there, every day he wakes up wanting to go outside and just walk around in a nice green park as a a free man, but he can't. Then after 40 years, he's set free. He goes home to the house he's given, he wakes up, but he's so used to feeling condemned and imprisoned that he forgets 
in his bed that he's a free man. But then it hits him. I am free. And he gets up and he just, see, just putting his hand on the door handle to open it and go into the garden, to go for a walk in the park, to see the trees, to hear the bubbling brook, to see the kids playing around him, to see the freedom of the whole thing. He just takes it all in. God wants you to live in the goodness of your freedom in Christ. And the command that follows this opening assertion of verse 1 makes this abundantly clear. For freedom, Christ has set us free. That's the assertion. Now the command. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Standing firm in the goodness of gospel freedom is something we are called to do. That is an action that we are called to do. This means it is possible to live a substandard Christian life where we are not standing firm in our gospel freedom. Satan wants to lie to you, to make you feel guilty. He wants to keep you from gospel freedom. He wants to make you believe in the gospel of self-effort salvation. As we were thinking for those who were part of the small group studies in James, we must resist him and his lies, knowing that we can draw near to God and he will draw near to us. He won't push us away. He will draw near to us as we come in repentance and faith. Listen, brothers and sisters, for your freedom... Christ died. For your freedom, he rose. For your freedom, God sent his spirit. This is not a small part of Christian living. This is Christian living. This is Christian living. And let me ask, how much of a conscious effort do you make to stand firm in your freedom? This is a command to be obeyed like every other command in the Bible. How much do you pray about living in the goodness of all that Christ set you free from? That's the assertion, and that's the command, and in a sense, that is a summary of the whole letter of Galatians. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, So stand firm in that freedom and don't submit again to any yoke of slavery. Don't let anyone or any thought or anything bring you back to any kind of slavery thinking it's up to your performance to get God to like you. Now after that assertion, and I know that's a bit of a thunderous assertion, okay? In verses 2 to 4, Paul explains, here's now one way we can fail to live in that freedom. You want an example? Well, here we have it. Legalism. The gospel that Paul had preached to the Galatians stated that Jesus Christ is sufficient in himself to liberate us from all our sin and to make us right with God. But as we've seen in the previous few weeks, a group had come to Galatia, a group of false teachers known as the Judaizers, and they were saying, no, 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 faith in Christ alone is not enough to save you. What we need is a Christ plus system. 
In Acts chapter 15, verse 1, we hear a report of what the false teachers were saying. They were saying this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now that's saying, fine, let's say Jesus is the Messiah, that's okay, but if you don't add to what he did certain works of religious obedience and devotion, you can't be right with God. So they were saying it's down. Now, this is the question of how do you get right with God? They were saying Christ alone is not sufficient. It must be Christ plus obedience to certain laws. And they picked out the law on circumcision, which was in the Old Testament that work that said you belonged to the covenantal people of God. So these Galatians, or these Judaizers, sorry, were saying Christ alone will not save you. You need to be legalistic. Now legalism, again, if you want a dictionary definition, means strict adherence to a system. We could say a system of self-effort salvation. Legalism is a denial of the sufficiency of Christ. It says, Christ gets us so far, but then we need to add a certain amount of religious works to get us into right standing with God. Sadly, we find a modern-day equivalent of this today in the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Romanism is theologically at heart a Christ-plus-works religion. The theology says... The sacrament of baptism will rid you of original sin. You cooperate with grace through the proper performance of the other sacraments of the church. You can get help along the way from the consequences of your sin through buying indulgences and other various religious works you do. It is a Christ plus works religion. And here's why I use that as an example. Because for us, we live in a city now where more than half of the city is under that system in some way. And Paul is very clear in verses 2 to 4 that Christ plus anything to make you right with God equals no salvation. Paul was absolutely ruthless in his response to this Christ plus gospel. Look at what he says in verses 2 to 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, that stood for any kind of work that you add to Christ, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. As I said, circumcision represented salvation by contributing our works to the work of Christ, whatever form those works may take. Paul is crystal clear. It is faith alone, in Christ alone that saves you, or it is no salvation. Verse 3, he was saying to the Galatians, if you go back to salvation through self-effort, that's a system that demands perfect obedience to the whole law. If you choose that system, you're trusting in salvation through self-contribution self-effort. You're not choosing to trust in the all-sufficient death of Christ. Now, why is this so important for Paul to stress? Well, because if you add anything to the finished work of Christ on the cross, you subtract 
from the sufficiency of Christ's saving work. The glory of the death of Christ is this, that his death accomplished everything that was needed to save us. To add works to that is to say that Christ's death in some way is deficient. It strips glory from Christ, and God will not stand for this. His glory he will not give to another. Do not insult the infinite value of Christ's death by thinking you need to add to it. It is Christ alone or it's nothing. No one trusting in a Christ plus religious work system can have any confidence in salvation. I think of what I'm saying and think of our context. Any church thinking seriously about evangelism in Belfast has to think seriously of how we can reach Roman Catholics. Do we just buy the culture's narrative? It's us and them. Do we rest okay with the fact that, what, 98% or something like that of evangelical churches in Northern Ireland are filled with Protestants only? I mean, as we speak of Protestants in Northern Ireland terms. Over 50% of our, of our city believing that they have to cooperate and add to Christ's work so that they can be right with God. And what does Paul say? Verse 4, they're severed from Christ, fallen away from grace. Not in Christ. Those who trust in a Christ plus system do not trust in God's grace alone to save them. They trust in God's grace and their works to save them. That whole system brings you back into slavery because how can you ever have assurance that you've done enough? There is no assurance in that system because there is no salvation in that system. This makes you a slave to fear and condemnation all over again. We've got to think carefully about how we can bring the whole gospel to the whole city. Never dressing the gospel up in any kind of Union Jack flag, making it look like it's just for broads. And let's be careful that we don't subtly fall into our own version of legalism. It may not be a theological legalism, but it may be a practical legalism. How? Well, when we trust in Christ alone to save us, but then we relate to God as if our relationship with him is based on our performance. Do you know what happens whenever you feel like you've got out of the way of reading your Bible and out of the way of prayer, and then you feel like, I can't go to God now because of how poor my performance have been? That is pride. That is sheer pride. Why is that pride? Because what is the logic of that system? I earn my way to God. I 
So let's be really, really careful that we don't fall into any kind of Christ plus form of legalism. And it can take many forms. It can be Christ plus, you've got to read the right Bible translation to be really in. Christ plus, you've got to dress like this to really be in. Christ plus an amount of commitment or giving or whatever, and you're in. Let's be really, really careful. I'm not going to cover this in detail, but in verses 7 to 12, Paul gives reasons for why we must not go down this route. Let's just survey it very briefly. In verse 7, he says, Christ plus works. This kind of teaching will hinder you from walking in the truth. Verse 8, it's a teaching that does not come from God. Verse 10, those who peddle and entertain this message are under God's judgment. Verse 11, this system removes the offense of the cross. What does he mean by that? He means it takes away the offense of our total inability to contribute anything to our salvation. See, that's offensive to say you can do nothing. By nature, we want to give something. It's an offense to our humanity to say you, you, you bring nothing to the table, just your sin. And look at what Paul says in verse 12. I wish those peddling this truth would cut themselves off. That's a literal translation. Now, the word emasculate that the ESV use means castrate themselves. Now, the original text just says, I wish they would just cut themselves off. And translators down through the years have said, in a context of speaking of circumcision, Paul's using real sarcasm, real hyperbole, saying, while they're making a big deal about cutting things off, I wish they'd just go and cut the whole lot off. Now, that's what some say it means. I'll leave you to think about what it means in the context of cutting off, speaking of circumcision. But what Paul's saying is, I just wish they'd go the whole hall and just be cut off. They'd just cut themselves off. It's a euphemistic way of saying, you need to get rid of them, this false teaching. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He says, be really careful. So there's one way we can lose living in the goodness of gospel freedom. Legalism, adding works to the finished work of Christ. Here's another way, verse 13 just. Another way we can lose this freedom is through license. Thinking you can just do anything you want. Where in verses 1 to 12, we are learning mostly about the danger of losing gospel freedom. Verse 13 is all about the danger of abusing gospel freedom. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You see, if we pushed this logical conclusion of being made right with God through faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone, not adding any works to it at all, you could conclude, well, surely we can just go and live whatever way we want then. That is what verse 13 is here to correct, the danger of license. You are set free from trying to gain your right standing with God through works, but that does not mean you're free to live however you want. The New Testament teaches us that all of the Old Testament laws meet in Christ. They're in some way fulfilled in 
Christ. You've heard me use this illustration before, some of you. Imagine light passing through a prism like you would do in science experiments. You pass a beam of white light through a prism, it gets refracted into a rainbow. This is how I like to think of a Christian as how I relate to the Old Testament laws. All of the the laws, all of the traditions, all of the ceremonies of the Old Testament, they're fulfilled in Christ. They're in some way all pointing to Christ. He fulfills them completely, but there is continuity going through as those laws are refracted. Some of them we understand now as wisdom for living the Christian life. Some of them help us to understand the death of Christ more fully. Some of them help us see the beauty of the person and work of Christ. For example, all of the teaching about the great high priest in the Old Testament. So we think about how we live the laws in this way. We do not receive them from the hand of Moses. We receive them from the hand of Christ. Paul calls this a number of times in the New Testament the Christian's obligation to live under the law of Christ. He uses this expression, for example, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In chapter 5, verse 7, Paul said, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So clearly there is a place of obeying the truth. Faith The obedience of faith, the obedience of the truth, how we live, we are to live in light of the law of Christ. But here's where our living out the law is very different to those who were living out the law in the Old Testament. We do not obey the law, we do not practice obedience in an attempt to earn our right standing with God. We obey the law of Christ as an expression of our love for the Lord, with the understanding that walking in His ways of righteousness, that's how we flourish. In our passage in verse 14, he explains that the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You should love your neighbor as yourself. So as Christians, the path of liberty It's not freedom to just do whatever we want. It is an invitation to walk in obedience to the law of Christ. What James calls in James chapter 2 verse 12, the law of liberty. The illustration that I use sometimes for this is uh, from uh, rugby. Imagine you say, well, let's just not have any rules. No lines on the pitch or anything. Let's just all do whatever we want. The game falls apart. But if you actually put boundary lines in place, you have a referee and you have rules, the game can flourish. Life is like that. You just say, we just do whatever we want. Well, that's a recipe for anarchy. But if there are good boundaries, those good boundaries set us free to live. And God's good laws, as we receive them from Christ, never trying to obey them to gain standing with God, but now receiving them as fulfilled and accomplished and completed by Christ, transposed by Christ, and now we live them out in Christ, the life of loving the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Well, this is the way you find freedom. This is the way humanity flourishes. It's a law of liberty. 
not a legalistic burden. So again, just before we we move into the last part of this, let's be careful here and let's ask ourselves some questions. Might you be in danger of walking on the path of license? Now, people in the world who are outside of the church will say, you know, just doing whatever you want, the path of license, that's freedom. But we know it's not. That's just slavery to your own appetites. But in the church, we can live in such a way where we say Christ has done it all, and therefore, my pursuit of holiness doesn't really matter. Now, you'd never say that. But does your life demonstrate that that's a functional truth you're holding? We can get too accustomed to grace and then get sloppy in our lives of devotion to the Lord. Our Christian lives and our pursuit of godliness does matter. It is actually an expression of the saving faith that we really have. It's an expression of our faith in the Lord and our love for the Lord. And that's what Paul goes on to say now as he helps us to see what walking in the path of real Christian liberty actually consists of. So, we've seen the assertion for freedom, Christ has set us free. We've seen the command to stand firm in that freedom. Don't fall off the horse on the side of legalism, adding works to Christ. It'll enslave you all over again. But don't fall off the horse on the other side of license, thinking you can just do whatever you want because that leads to sloppy Christian living and being a poor witness. So finally now, and for this we'll look at verses 5 and 6, Paul speaks of what true Christian liberty is. And I'm going to summarize it in this statement. It is walking in faith, hope, and love. Verses 5 and 6 bring a beautiful balance to the life of true Christian liberty. The emphasis on these verses first falls on the word faith. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working or expressing itself through love. In verse 5, by spirit-empowered faith, we wait. In verse 6, by spirit-in-Christ-empowered faith, we work. In verse 5, true Christian liberty is known through waiting by faith, for the hope of righteousness. Now, we are counted righteous, as Paul has already said, in Christ now. But Paul has also said in chapter 4 that we are made sons with an incredible inheritance that comes from our righteous standing in Christ. The fullness of this inheritance, this blessing, will be known in the future. We taste something of it now, but the fullness of our inheritance is yet to come. And for this 
future inheritance, this hope of righteousness, we rest in Christ and we wait. We do not work for this blessing. We wait for it, knowing that Christ has secured that inheritance for us. We don't strive anxiously as if we must secure our salvation and the inheritance that comes with it. By the powerful work of the Spirit, notice that at the beginning of verse 5, through the Spirit, we live by faith. We rest. We wait on the sure and certain hope of the righteousness that we have in Christ. We don't try to add to it. We just wait for the fullness of it when we meet the Lord. So when we read the command of verse 1, stand firm therefore, God is calling us through His Word, through His Spirit, to stand firm in this assurance. Christ is all you need for righteousness. Righteousness now and righteousness on that day when you stand before a holy judge. All you need is Christ. That's where you place your hope. That's how you wait in the assurance. Christ is enough. And remember, our hope is in a promise. God has promised that if we have his son, he will not count our sins against us. God keeps his promises. And you put all your hope and all your assurance and all your rest in life and in death there. You live in the goodness of the freedom that Christ gives you. You just rest all your hope for righteousness on Christ. You wait in hope and you don't work for that hope. Stand firm in this assurance. Then the second part of our liberty comes in recognizing that this faith that helps us to wait is the faith that finds expression in life through works of love and service. Verse 6 is really striking. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Now that means anything with respect to your standing with God. The only thing that counts is faith that works or works itself out or expresses itself through love. A modern day translation of that could say something like this. When it comes to being made right with God, being really morally good and religious, it counts for nothing. And being really bad and irreligious counts for nothing. The only thing that matters is faith in Christ. That's what makes you right with God. doesn't matter if you spent 40 years in a church, not yet a Christian, but you came every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening. You put your money into the basket every single week when baskets were passed around. It doesn't matter how religious you say you are. All of that moral religiosity counts for nothing in gaining your right standing with God. How many nominal people need to hear that today? that are in Northern Ireland, going to churches, maybe liber, li, sort of liberal churches where they're not hearing the gospel, and they think that by going to church, they're accruing merit with God. That by their good works, they're accruing merit. And they will say, well, God will accept me because I 
went to church every Sunday, and I set up my giving, and I was a morally upstanding, good-living person. Let me tell you, all of that counts for absolutely zero in gaining standing, right standing with God. It is useless. And then what about the person that spent 40 years, no interest in church, living an openly sinful life, never thinking about the gospel, never thinking about what it is to be good living, whatever we think that is, does all their moral badness disqualify them and make them any less entitled to salvation by grace through faith? It doesn't matter if you're morally good. It doesn't matter if you're morally bad. The only thing that can make you right with God is trusting in the finished work of Christ. That's what Paul is saying there in verse 6. Faith unites one to Christ. And the faith that truly unites one to Christ transforms the life. Because he goes on to say that that faith finds expression through love. This is where Paul meets James. When James says, look, faith without any life transformation, it's, it's not real faith. Paul says the same. True faith finds expression through love. And that's love for the Lord. And love for people. And don't miss that first, but love for the Lord. There are too many people who name the name Christian. And they don't seem to have any affectionate love for the Lord. Love for the Lord is how your faith is expressed. Love for others is how your faith is expressed. So on the path of liberty, we walk in faith, trusting in the finished work of Christ. We hope in Christ that when we stand before the Lord, He is all we need. And then we walk the walk of Christian love, loving the Lord and loving his people. The Christian path of liberty flows from a right relationship with God. It's relational. You love the Lord because of all that he has done for you. And in the liberty of his love, a love that does not need to be earned through works, you give your life to walking in his path of righteousness. We don't live and act to gain favor with God on the path of true Christian liberty. We live and act out of the blessing we know already in God, in Christ. So, on one side, we can lose our Christian freedom living in the goodness of the gospel through legalism, adding to Christ. On the other, we can lose it through license, just being sloppy. But there is a path of faith, hope, and love. And we're going to see the practical way that works out next week in one of the most stunning passages in the whole of the Bible when we come to the passage on how to walk in the Spirit, how to produce the fruit of this life that is the life of love, and how to fight against that flesh. That's going to be next week. But let's close now by just asking ourselves a series of questions by way of response. I want, to ask you, I want you to ask yourself these questions as we close. Am I really living in the goodness of the gospel? 
Am I standing firm in the freedom that I have in Christ? Have I fallen into legalism in some way in the way I relate to God? Have I fallen into license in the way I relate to God? How can I more fully walk on the path of Christian liberty, knowing security in Christ and giving my life to loving the Lord and loving those around me? As we think on those questions, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for your revelation to us that you want us to enjoy gospel freedom. You have included this passage in the Bible so that we would know your will. You want us to stand firm in the freedom we have in Christ. And as a church here in the city of Belfast, you want us to stand firm in the sufficiency of Christ, preaching Christ alone, because therein is the power of God unto salvation. And we want to pray, Lord, that there's anyone here and they're not understanding the gospel, they think that it's to do with works, or they think it gives free rein to licentious living. Just pray that once again we'd realize that Christ is all we need to be saved. But then that faith that unites us to Christ is a faith that transforms us with a love for the Lord and a love to serve others. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand that. And I really want to pray, Lord, for that, for the Roman Catholic Church in Belfast. Many people today gathering with a faith plus version of the gospel. And Paul was just so desperate as he wrote to the Galatians, trying to get in among them and say, don't go back into any burden, any yoke of slavery, any Christ plus form of religion because it's, there's no salvation there. And when we think of that, Lord, for over 50% of this city, think of Catholics who think they're in a system of salvation but are not. We pray, Lord, for the salvation of Roman Catholics in Belfast and across the whole island of Ireland. We pray for spiritual light and for the sufficiency of Christ to be exalted we pray for those in the markets this morning, that, Lord, many of them who don't know you, we pray that they would come to know Jesus as their all-sufficient Savior. We pray for those in the village and in the houses around us who perhaps are just living in license, no thought of God at all. We pray that they would come to know the sufficiency of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we would live every day in the goodness and freedom of the gospel. You don't want us to mess around in the arrogance of performance-based religion. You want us to be free recognizing that by ourselves we can do nothing to be right with you and that Christ has redeemed us from that situation. So let us never cast a cloud over the sufficiency of the work of Christ by thinking that we, can, that we need to add to his work through our works. Help us to rest, and then as we rest and wait, help us to live those lives of faithful Christian obedience as an expression of our love for and devotion to the God who loved us and gave himself for us. In Christ alone our hope is found. May that ever be the message that resounds out from this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand together and respond with the words of that great hymn where we celebrate the sufficiency of Christ. Amen.
freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.